The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen. Church, this morning we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 through 28. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Father God, we we come and bow before you this morning as the creator and sustainer of all that is. Father, there is nothing visible or invisible, no powers or authorities, none of what we call natural law, none of humanity, none of the stars in the sky, the elephants in the field, the ants down in their beds, no mountains, no oceans, no people, were it not for you. Not just in creating, but sustaining us at every single moment. So Father, we would be fools to come before you today and seek to advise you on how you should run this universe. We'd be fools today to come and try to interpret our own reading into your holy word. Father, we come today to submit to your will and to be transformed by your word. So Father, we ask that you would do these things now. That you would change us. That you would give us a passion for your glory, a love for your will, and absolute devotion to your kingdom. Father, move and work in us now. For we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So nearly 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation was in full swing. The major issues, of course, surrounded the Holy Scriptures. For hundreds of years, the Christian people had been trusting the leaders in their church to faithfully tell them what God had revealed in his word. But when the time came that they actually had access to their own copy, when they were able to open the Bible and see for themselves what was there, what they found was that much of what they had been taught was nowhere to be found that much of what they had always held on to and believed did not match up with who God was or what he intended to do in their lives. And the joy in this was that people that once had no hope, they found themselves working and striving to try and earn favor and forgiveness with God. They felt an overwhelming sense of joy as they came to the realization that a relationship with God and forgiveness of sins comes from nothing other than his unmerited grace. The consequences of this radical shift Christian men and women moving out of the darkness of tradition and outward ordinances and into the beautiful light of the pure and true gospel. It was wide-reaching. 
There was almost no area of Christian life that was not affected by this realization, and communion was no exception. The Reformers found themselves on the receiving end of great amounts of persecution and resistance as they spoke up against what the church had what the church had taught for so long. They had been trying to drive into the hearts of the people that what happens when you come to the communion table like this is that you meet with Jesus Christ, and indeed, friends, you do. But what they taught was that as you come to this table, it is there that you will be met by the corporal, the physical, the literal and local body of Jesus Christ. And so as these Christian reformers, they spoke up against this. They taught back against this. They were met with great persecution, many of them laying down their lives, literally being burned alive at the stake because they refused to let go of what they believed they saw very clearly in God's word with regards to the Lord's table. You see, these men, these women, even some children, they knew that what we believed with regards to the Lord's Supper, it matters. It matters a lot. But you see, as you fast forward to the 21st century, what you'll find is that this passion and concern for the theology of the Lord's Supper, it's been replaced by apathetic superficiality. People come to this table with all manner of casual thoughts. People come to this table with all manner of thoughtlessness, giving no real discernment to what it is that we're intended to do as we walk down this aisle and come to meet with Christ at his table. Now, obviously, God has no desire for his people to go to war with each other. He has no desire for us to be burning each other at the stake over how we believe Jesus meets us at the table. But I submit to you this morning that there are many who call themselves Christian who completely miss out on all that Jesus Christ offers us in himself because they have no clue what this table represents. But even more concerning than that, I tell you there are Christian men and women There are non-believers as well that come to this table and they drink the judgment of God. They eat the judgment of God upon themselves because they come in an unworthy manner. So in light of that, my hope for our time this morning is that we might come to grow in our love for and understanding of communion. This ordinance of Christ, which we now call the Lord's Supper. I pray that this morning, many of you, perhaps for the very first time, you will come to understand exactly what is meant to happen as you come to this table. And then my hope for the next two weeks is that we're going to come back to this table again and again and again. For the next two weeks, I'm going to focus on a different portion of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his person and in his work. All that he purchased for us as represented at this table. Now, I know there's great danger in that if we're not careful. If we're not careful, we can turn the communion into nothing more than a rote religious exercise. Just an outward ordinance with no real... No real implications for our heart and our mind and our soul. But dear friends, I truly believe that the exact opposite will happen. I believe as we grow to understand all that Christ is for us and in us. I believe as you come to recognize what this bread and what this juice represents, that you're going to find an appreciation and a passion that only grows for this service. I anticipate that we're going to look backwards on these last three weeks once they've concluded and we'll find ourselves earnestly cherishing all that Jesus has done amongst us during this time. So for now, we return to this morning's text. I invite you to stand to your feet, please. We continue to study verse by verse through Mark's gospel. We're in the 14th chapter. We're beginning in the 22nd verse. This is the word of God. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my body of the covenant, excuse me, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Again, Father, we ask you to do what only you can do. For those that need to be called and saved, would you do that? For those of us that need encouragement and endurance, would you do that? Father, we're asking you to do the things that only you can do as we approach your word. Father, we love you and we trust you. It's in your son's precious name we pray, amen. So those of you that have been with us week after week, you'll recall that we are studying the events of Thursday night of Passion Week. Before the sun comes up, Jesus will be arrested. Before it goes back down, he will be killed and buried. This is a critical time. It's a critical time of instruction for the apostles. You see, they had no possible hope of fully comprehending everything that lay ahead. And yet Jesus had to make clear to them that everything that came in the days that follow happened exactly in accordance with his will. All as he had prophesied, all as he had predestined to take place, these men had to know that Jesus Christ was in control of this entire drama. But in addition to this, they had to know how they were intended to live and what help he would send them as the son returns to the father. So we read in verse 22, on this night, and as they were eating, so this is the Passover meal. We spent a great bit of time the last two weeks establishing the fact that this was in fact the Passover. Now Jesus had a deep love and reverence for the Passover. It was a celebration of the birth of the nation of Israel. In addition to this, up to this point, it was the defining moment in the redemptive history of God with regards to his people. That's why all throughout the Old Testament, you constantly see God pointing his people's hearts and their minds back to the Passover and the Exodus. We see this even in the giving of the law. It begins like this in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, when the people of Israel, when they thought about God's saving work, when they thought about the basis for their relationship with him, their minds always went back to the Passover. And so when Luke tells us that Jesus expressed that he had an earnest desire, a deep desire, a burning desire to take this supper with his apostles, he's pointing to just a myriad of emotions and history and anticipation that all went into this meal. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. Now the responsibility for the observance of the Passover, it fell on the head of the household. It was Jesus Christ who would be in control of the meal and the pace as it played out throughout this night. That's no surprise to us. Jesus has always been in charge of all things, the stars in the sky, even the hearts of kings. Jesus directs them all as he wishes. And yet what would have happened throughout this meal is at each stage there would have been a glass of wine that would have been brought out. Then an offering would have been, a blessing would have been offered. And then with that, the presentation of a dish, some food that was meant to remind the people of all that God had done for them back in Egypt as he bought their freedom and brought them into this promised land. So at this point in the meal, as Jesus stands up, he takes the bread and he breaks it, they would have expected the standard declaration, which goes like this. This is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came out of the land of Egypt. This bread was meant to represent the unleavened bread that the people of Egypt ate as they left. In addition to this, more than this perhaps, it was meant to remind them of the great affliction, the great trouble, the great sorrow, the great trials that they faced as God bought for them their freedom as they walked out of that place and into the wilderness. So he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and he said, take, this is my body. Of course, as I just said, was not what they were expecting to hear, but I need to make one thing absolutely clear. 
There would have been no one sitting there at that table on that night that thought for one second that what Jesus was presenting to them and what he was telling them he presented was his actual corporal physical body. Number one, it was Jesus' body who was handing them the bread. Number two, Jesus had a fully human body just like you and just like me. And physical bodies, human bodies, can only be in one place at one time physical body of Jesus Christ it is at the right hand of the father in heaven today it cannot be in two places not even in glory so these men they would have known what Jesus meant he was taking this bread and he was saying this bread which once represented this bread which once pointed to people's mind toward the affliction of our people in Egypt it now represents my body my body which will soon be broken for you my body which will be afflicted to purchase your freedom Jesus was transforming the focus he was transforming the meaning of this meal. Now, no one has the right to do this but God. And yet, that's exactly what he's doing. He's taking this picture, this remembrance of God's saving work, of the work he did in purchasing his people's freedom, and he's pointing it back onto himself. And he's saying, every time you come and you eat this bread, every time you come and you drink this cup, and you think about God's saving work, you think about the basis for your relationship with him, no longer are you to look back towards Egypt. No longer are you to look back towards the Passover. You're to look to me. Look at my body. This is the place in which your freedom is purchased. This is the place in which you are made right with God. This is the ultimate revelation of God's redeeming work against his people. From now on, when you see this bread, you're seeing my body. Verse 23, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. As best we can tell, this would have been the third of four cups that were drank on that night. So the meal was almost complete. Now, traditionally, just as with the bread, there would have been a standard saying that the, that the head of the household would have mentioned at this moment. And they would have said, I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. So the cup, this is a reminder of God's absolute power in setting them free from slavery. This is a reminder of God's mercy in sparing them the wrath that they were due because of their sins. It was a reminder of God's power in setting them free and parting the sea, drowning the Egyptians behind them, and then providing for their every last need. This is a reminder of all God's goodness up to this point. Verse 24, but he said to them, this is the blood of my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Luke tells us that Jesus said, this is the new covenant in his blood. Again, Jesus is refocusing the men's eyes. He's refocusing their hearts to something new. This cup no longer points them back to Moses. This point no longer points them back to the old covenant. He says, I've come to deliver, to usher in, to establish and to ratify a new and greater covenant. Now, the people had longed for this day for hundreds of years. This day promised through the prophet Jeremiah. They knew that there were, there were greater blessings to come, greater promises to come, and yet they had no idea that it would be through the death of Messiah that they would be offered. They believed Messiah would come and usher in these greater promises, this new covenant, through earthly power and might. No concept that he would be laying down his life. But that's exactly what he's making clear. Now the idea of a sacrifice, the idea of the shedding of blood with regards to the ushering in of a covenant, this was not foreign to the people. As we look back to the giving of the old, of the old covenant, we see as Moses is confirming it with the people. We read these words in Exodus 24, beginning in verse 5. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
This old covenant, it was signed, it was inaugurated, it was ratified by the blood of these sacrificial substitutes. The death of these animals, it was necessary. The sprinkling of this blood, it was necessary. It was necessary, number one, to cleanse the uh, sin that was upon God's people, to make them ceremonially clean that he could come before them. In addition to this, it was necessary to atone for those sins. This is why half the blood was thrown on the altar and the other half was thrown on the people. This was an act of atonement and purification. So the people would have been familiar with a picture like this, but the problem was that those sacrifices, they were ineffectual. They met their desired purpose. They did exactly what God had intended for them to do. They were shadows. They were copies. They were pictures. They were signs pointing forward to the substance, but they were never meant to last forever. They were meant to draw people's heart to the ultimate once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord. So these animals, they could never take away the sins of people. They could never deal ultimately with the problem that these people faced. They were going to need a greater, an ultimate, once and for all, infinitely worthy sacrifice. But in addition to this, as I said, they longed for even greater promises. As wonderful as the old covenant was, all that it had done, they knew through the prophet Jeremiah there was something greater which awaited them. We read about this in Hebrews, Hebrews 8 verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not know, they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor or each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Again, this is the new covenant which had been promised hundreds of years earlier, that God would write his law on the hearts and minds of his people. Earlier in Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah 17, he tells the people that the sins of Israel, the sins of Jacob, had been written on their hearts with pens of iron. And yet now God would come and replace that sin. He would replace it with his good and perfect law. This law in which he reveals himself and his ultimate standard of righteousness. That no longer would these people be burdened down with external ordinances and traditions. But that the law of God would be a true delight in their heart. That it would please them. They would find true pleasure in following after and obeying God. In addition to this, he says that he would be for them. He would be their God and they would be his people. That no longer would they be separated from, them, from him because of their sin. That he would keep and care for them in every way. That not only would God work towards his glory, he would work towards their ultimate good in all that he did. And in addition to this, they would be wiped clean. The stain of their sin. All that separated them from God. They would be washed clean once and for all so that he may present to himself a pure and beautiful bride. To the people, they longed for this day. They had looked forward to this day. They had surely told their children that this day was coming, but they had no concept just the depth of their sin. They had no concept the full weight of punishment that was due upon sinners. They had no idea that it was going to take the infinitely glorious Son of God to lay down his life to purchase these promises for them. But Jesus is making clear to the 12 and us today that it's only by my blood that this covenant may come. Now I want you to notice something else. It's Jesus who breaks the bread and it's Jesus who offers the cup. He's making clear, just as he said elsewhere, that no one will take his life from him, that it's he who will lay it down, that only Jesus Christ has the authority to lay down his life and the authority to take it back up. 
He is he who is going to be responsible for the laying down of his life to the pouring out of his blood. And even in that language, there's some weight to it. He's prophesying about the manner of his death, the pouring out of blood. That's Old Testament language. It goes along with violent death. We're being reminded here that Jesus didn't die in his sleep. Jesus died a grotesque and violent death at the hands of sinful men. Matthew tells us that his blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Dear friends, this is absolutely fundamental for our theology. Jesus was a sacrificial substitute. Jesus came to die in our rightful place. You must see this. Jesus did not ultimately die just to show you how much he loves us. Although, God's love is most clearly seen at the cross. Jesus didn't just die to show us how much he hates sin. Although God's hatred for sin is very clearly seen at the cross. Jesus didn't just die to accept for us an example to follow, although he makes very clear that any who would come after him must take up their cross and follow him. Dear friends, you must understand that Jesus Christ ultimately died to glorify the Father. That the Father may be both just and the justifier of sinners. That as he drank down the full cup of his Father's wrath due to sinful men and women like you and like me and reconciled us to the him, it was all for the sake of his Father's glory. And yes, his love for us. So you must recognize that Jesus Christ would die to atone for sins, actual sins, not the theory of sin, not the idea of sin. Jesus Christ came to atone, to pay the penalty for, to take away the weight of, and to wash us clean, to drink down his father's wrath for uh, actual sins due to actual saints. Not just the concept of sin, real transgressions, real acts, Real utterances of untruth. Real prideful thoughts. Any moment in our life when we fail to love the Lord our God with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. Verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. See the promise here, church. There's another supper coming in the kingdom. The ultimate fulfillment of this supper he's pointing forward to that day he's reminding us that the passover and the lord's supper they're both commemoration and anticipation pointing forward to a fuller fulfillment with the coming of the kingdom now you might rightly ask wait a minute i thought that jesus already brought the kingdom the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is at hand isn't that what he said oh yes dear friends christ jesus our king has come and with him he has inaugurated the kingdom of god at the cross he's done everything he needs to do to buy our citizenship to bring to us the promises of this new covenant. He's done everything that needs to be done to wash us clean, to make us right and reconcile us with the Father. He has now ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits and he rules and he reigns with all power and all authority and all dominion today. And even today we see the coming of his kingdom as he reigns and he rules in the hearts and lives of those that he has called in, of those that he has welcomed in to his kingdom. But the very last of the saints has not yet been brought in. When that day comes, when the last of the saints, those who have been predestined by God, when that day comes that he calls the last of the saints in, then we will hear the final trumpet sound. It is then that we see Jesus visibly descending from heaven. It is then that the dead will rise and all will be judged. That those who have rejected him, those who are found still in their sin, they will find themselves banished along with that sin and death and hell and the grave into the lake of fire for all eternity. But that those who are found in him, that they will receive unending blessings true and lasting pleasures at the feet of Jesus Christ. And it's at that time when he will establish his visible earthly throne for all times. 
It's at that time when we will see him as he is and we will become like he is. It's at that time when we will see the full and final consummation of the kingdom of God. And it's at that time when we will sit down and enjoy this meal with him. The bride with the bridegroom enjoying this marvelous marriage supper. So that when Luke says that what Jesus said on that night was, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's telling the disciples then in the middle of the establishment of this new covenant. He's telling his disciples today that Passover won't be complete until the very last of those chosen by God are brought in. You continue to do this. He's inviting his people. He's calling his people. You continue to come to this table. You continue to meet with and feast on me. You continue to faithfully come to this table. But as for me, I will not eat this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. Until the very last of those that are mine have been welcomed in. The last of those who the Father has given me. The last of those who I laid down my life to purchase. The last of those who the Holy Spirit is calling in and securing, protecting until that very last day. Do you see? Jesus is saying, I purchased a bride with my own blood and I don't lose. I will not enjoy this supper until every last member, until the fullness of my bride has come together. And on that day, when she is delivered to me, holy and pure and precious, it is on that day when we shall sit down and feast together. But until then, I will not eat this meal again. You continue to come. You need to be strengthened. You need to endure. You need to carry on that you may be at that table. So you continue to come and eat, but I will not eat until that day. So as we prepare to move to this table, in light of that, in light of all that Jesus has now instructed us with regards to the table, in anticipation of the meal to come, what do we do with it? David read the words earlier from Exodus with regards to how, how we interact with our children with regards to the, was it Exodus or Deuteronomy? Exodus, I thought so. I picked it, by the way. I should have known. But this, this beautiful scene of the youngest child within the house looking to the head of the household and saying, Daddy, what's special about this night? Why are we reclining like this? Why are we drinking from this cup? Why are we reciting all these hymns and singing the Hallel? And I pray that for some of you, as you come into this, as you come into this room and, and the tables are set out, I pray that some of your children look at you, maybe those that are coming for the first time and they notice the different furniture and they notice the shiny objects and maybe they look at you and go, what's different? Why is the order of service different? And daddy, why, why are we walking to the, to the front of the church? And daddy, why can't I have some of that bread and some of that juice? that you would have the proper understanding of what this meal means. So that you can with absolute confidence look your precious child in the eye and tell him this is what Christ has given us in his table. And thankfully, we have some more instruction on this. You see, before the gospels were even written, the church was well established. Maybe perhaps at about the same time that Mark was writing his gospel, we have some of the writings of Paul. Paul was being used of God to help shape the theology of the church help admonish them when they failed, to encourage them when they needed encouragement, to just help the church to take shape and to follow the proper track that God had given for them. And he would, he would scold them at times when they had lost sight of who they were in Jesus Christ and what the purpose for the gathering was. And we see one such time in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And he's writing to admonish them on this day because they had turned the Lord's Supper into an absolute mess. Word had reached Paul that what was happening was rich people were coming to the supper and they were gorging themselves or they were getting drunk and there was nothing left for the poor amongst them. It was, 
had no resemblance to the Lord's Supper. There was no unity there. There was no communion there. There was no fellowship there. So much so that some people were getting sick and dying. I always wondered if when visitors joined us on communion Sunday, we ought to issue them a warning. Take this right. I don't, I've never been in a church where God struck a man dead for taking communion wrongly, but I don't believe that he wouldn't. And so we, we see here in Paul's response to these people, his response on how they're to take communion, we see some instruction for ourselves. So after scolding the rich people, he's telling them, look, if you want to eat and you want to drink, go do that at home. But when you come here, when you come to gather at the Lord's table, you must know what you're doing. You must know the purpose for us being here. And he says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. Now, Paul would have heard about the Lord's Supper from the apostles that were there in the room on that night. But evidently, the Lord has also confirmed for him that everything he heard was true. So he says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. These same words are echoed by Luke in his gospels. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Dear friends, as we gather together on a day like this, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to come to this table, we must remember Christ. You must recognize that what we come to celebrate on this day and every Lord's Day is the actual, historical, well-attested, physical life and death of Jesus Christ. As you come to this table, you must preach to yourself that gospel, that gospel that's been faithfully handed down by good men from generation to generation. But you must not allow yourself to fall for the lies of the enemy. You must not allow yourself to fall for the lies of this world. So many, they come to Christianity and they attempt to turn it into nothing more than a religious ethic. Some kind words, some well wishes, some nice words to live by. Dear friends, I declare to you, no. What we come to, when we come to Christianity, we come to a person. It's at the feet of that person that we are radically changed, that we live out these radically transformed lives, supernaturally transformed lives with the absolute and full assurance that 2,000 years ago, the infinite son of God left the glories of heaven to be born of a virgin. That he lived a perfect and sinless life, fulfilling every last decree that his father had placed upon man, and yet still that he willingly laid down his life, that he died like a criminal in our place, taking our sins upon himself, not only to wash us clean from the stain of sin, but to satisfy his father's wrath in full. So much so that he turned over the cup and declared, it is finished. That three days later, he rose again in power and glory. That he presented himself to Peter and to the others, hundreds of others. Before then finally standing upon the Mount of Olives, he ascended into the clouds of heaven and that one day he will come back personally and visibly to claim his church for himself. That here he will reign forever and ever and ever. Dear friends, do you see this? Christianity is not about nice moral lives. It's about forsaking everything that you are and everything that you have, all your own efforts and all your own preferences and throwing the full weight of all of that upon a person. And you cannot know this person. You cannot truly know Jesus Christ if you have not come to these holy scriptures and seen his face. It breaks my heart for people that say, I'm going to come to communion. I love communion Sunday. I cannot wait to meet with Jesus Christ at his table. And they've not spent one second during the week meeting with him alone in their prayer closet. They say, I love Jesus Christ with everything that is within me. And yet you find out they don't know the Jesus of the scriptures. They've never actually encountered them. Oh, they've heard about him. Pastors have told them about him. 
But in the end, what they've done is they've created a Jesus of their own imagination. A Jesus molded in their own image. Dear friends, we must remember Jesus, but it must begin here, knowing the Jesus of the Bible. And of course, no, it does not stop with just knowledge. Because remembering Christ is not just about our minds, it's about directing our hearts towards him. You know, there's certain people and certain events in this lifetime that just the first remembrance, just the first thought about them brings back the full weight of that moment. It all just comes crashing down upon you. You remember what you were wearing. You remember who was with you. You remember what the air smelled like. You remember the first person you ran and told about what you had just experienced. Dear friends, to remember Christ, to take this supper in remembrance of him, to look at and to hold this bread, to pick up this cup, it's an opportunity for you to savor that memory of him, to slow down for a second, allow the full weight of all that Jesus Christ is and all that Jesus Christ has done to all come flooding back in that moment. It's an opportunity to direct your mind and your hearts and your emotions, your entire soul towards God. Verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As you take this cup into your hand and you taste the sweetness of the juice, I want you to remember the goodness and the absolute joys of all that Christ has purchased you in this new covenant. You taste the sweetness of the sugar that's in this juice. You remember the sweetness of Christ, the goodness of God, the fact that he who should stomp you down, he who should throw you into the eternal fires of hell, that he calls you son, that he welcomes you as daughter, that he works for your good, that he blesses you beyond belief. So I plead with you to slow down in these moments. Don't get distracted. Don't allow your hearts to get carried away. Don't start thinking about lunch. In these moments, fully embrace this reality recognizing that this cup represents all that was purchased for you in that new covenant. That you, who are once filled with sin, your heart, with the sins of your life written, on pen, written with pins of iron upon your heart, that God has wiped that away and he has filled you with his good law. It is a delight to embrace that law, to walk in obedience to him. That no longer are you separated from God as children of wrath, that you are embraced and welcomed in as sons and daughters and at the stain of every last transgression you've ever committed, every last sin, every last word, every last thought, every last action, that the stain of every last bit of your sin has been washed away. It has been removed and remembered no more. Every time you come to the table, you confirm your faith in that. The Jesus that you know, a true and literal person that came to the earth and did all that the scriptures tell us he has done, and you embrace, you commit to live an all-out faith towards him, trusting in the promises that he's made. So believers, you prepare to come to this table. That's the commemoration. That's the looking backwards to the cross. That's looking backwards to all the works that have already been done. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is proclamation and anticipation. But every time we come to this table, we proclaim the gospel, firstly, to ourselves. We're preaching the gospel to ourselves the whole time we come here. We're, pro we're proclaiming it to the world as well. Look, in a gathering this size, certainly in a gathering this size of the first hour, there are sure to be non-believers here, even if it's just non-believing children of believers. Dear friends, you have an opportunity to preach the gospel to them in the way you take this supper, in the way that you hold this cup, in the conversations you have as you get in your car and go back home. If you're a non-believer and you've just come here on your own, you're a grown-up, and you're not yet following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know we're so glad you're here. 
This is a precious time for us. You've picked a fine time to join us because you're about to get to see the gospel played out before your very eyes. This is not the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His body was broken and bruised and his blood spilled on the cross 2,000 years ago. There is no more sacrifices needed. And as we come to remember all that he has done here, as we come to proclaim that gospel to ourselves, we're proclaiming it to you as well. It, it wouldn't be appropriate for you to reach out your hand and take of these elements. You can't remember him. You can't take them in faith. And yet I would invite you to come. Come to this table. Look and see what's happening there. And then ask God to save you. Ask God by the working of his gospel, by the power of his spirit in this moment, cry out to God and ask him to save you because only he can do it. There's no words that I can say to you. There's no well wishes I can give you. Only God can save you. So in these moments, would you cry out to him just like that? But in addition to this, there's an anticipation. We're declaring to the world that we're not yet, we don't yet have the fullness of Christ. There will be a day when he comes bodily. Again, when we see him as he is and we are as he is, that there are pleasures yet to come that we will not receive until that day. And so we take this supper in anticipation of that day. We proclaim this until he comes. Isn't that the words we speak? Every time we drink the juice, I say until he comes. And you say, do better when we do the real thing, will you? Until he comes, that we long for that day. To taste Jesus Christ is to want more. To truly know Jesus Christ is to want more. But there's one more piece. You see, this isn't just a looking backwards in commemoration. This isn't just a looking forward in anticipation. There's something more right here in this moment. But you see, so many Christians have overcorrected. There's so many Christians, they look back on the, the Catholic way of believing that Jesus physical and corporal body is here and we, and we reject that we absolutely reject that this is not the literal and local body of Jesus Christ that body is in heaven today and yet we've so overcorrected that we found ourselves in another ditch we treat this as nothing more than a play act we're acting out the gospel and we're looking forward to some days to come but there's no spiritual activity here friends Jesus Christ isn't going to meet you at his table isn't that what so many say this is all purely symbolic there's no room for spiritual activity that you know Jesus Christ says surely I will be with you even unto the ends of the earth but he wouldn't dare meet you at his table now men might not say it that forthrightly but frankly that's the way we act and I believe that's why so many of Southern Baptists completely miss the beauty and the power and the majesty of what God desires to do for us and in us at this table and so I try to keep this before you every time we come I always say, the Lord bid you to come and meet with him at his table. The Lord bid you to come and feast upon him. He invites you to come and eat food bought at a price you could not afford, purchased at a price you would not pay. The Lord bid you to come be with him now. But what does that mean? Those are poetic enough sounding words. I mean, that sounds like the kind of words that a preacher would say if he wanted you to make more out of this. But so what? What does it actually mean? What is Jesus inviting us to do at this table? Dear friends, I submit to you this morning that for those of you that truly remember Christ, for those of you who have seen and now Savior Jesus Christ as your only hope and your ultimate treasure, for those of you who truly long for his coming, for those of you that can rightly look out at all the blessings of this world and count them all as rubbish, 
compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. That you come to this table in childlike faith, that the first thing you'll encounter is physical elements. Literal bread and literal juice. Nothing special. I bought them all from Aldi's. I cut the bread myself. Some men that you know, they all poured the juice. We prayed a prayer over the congregation. We prayed a prayer over you. We prayed that you would be blessed as we come together in this place. But we didn't try to do some hocus pocus to turn this bread or this juice into anything else. Because that's what it is. But for those that come in childlike faith, for those that come with hearts that really long for Jesus Christ, you'll recognize that this is a shadow of something so much greater. Again, we find Paul very helpful on this. The chapter before he admonishes the church on the way they take communion, he also warns them against idolatry. And we read this, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? In the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup and the bread are a participation in the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? He's helpful. Two lines down. He says this, verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? See, for the Old Testament saints, for those who came in faith to the temple, they offered an animal in their place. They offered an animal to atone for their sins. And then once that animal was sacrificed, some of the meat would be given to them and they would eat there in the very presence of God. This is a meal of koinonia, a meal of fellowship. Now remember, you don't eat with enemies. And yet he does not call us enemies. He calls us children. He calls us friend. And that reason they were able to do this is because the eating of this meal, it was a participation in the sacrifice. It was a participation in all that that sacrifice accomplished on that altar. Do you understand? So as we come together, as they come together and they eat this meal in the presence of God, everything that was accomplished, the satisfying of God's wrath, the washing away of their sin, these people were now able to enjoy these pleasures. They were able to enjoy these gifts in a very real and personal way as they came and ate in faith in his presence. Do you understand? They were joined together with the one that laid down their life just as if they themselves had died. And so it's an act of love. As we fast forward to today, what does this table represent? How are we participating in the blood and body of Jesus Christ? As we come to this table and God engages our natural senses, this is a condescension and a blessing. He knows how strong our passions are. He knows how strong our senses are. He knows how addicted we are to our physical senses. Many of you, you're coming into this room having fasted for the very first time. Some of you coming into this room having fasted longer than you've ever fasted before. And you know about the power of the natural senses more than before as you tried to resist as you fought against natural hunger, you know about your senses. And yet these are gifts from God. They're gifts of God meant to direct you to something more. Meant to direct you to the bread and the juice. Meant to direct you to the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus Christ, which is in heaven today. So as you come and he engages your physical senses, he is trying to illuminate. He's trying to engage your spiritual senses. So that you come here and you recognize that this table is a picture of so much more. The Westminster Divines, they called it a sign and a seal. We might call it a reminder and an assurance of all of God's promises. As you come and you take this and you remember Jesus' body, it's an assurance to you that all Jesus says he has done, he has done. That all the goodness he promises to accomplish in your life from this day to your very last, he will accomplish. That all that was washed away by, the, by his blood, all of your sin stained, washed away, is an assurance and a, a reminder that that has happened. So this bread and this cup, they represent so much more. They represent the sacrificed body, the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. 
And in a very real sense, for those who come in faith, for those who can see beyond it, as you come to this table, they represent the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. Not corporally, not carnally, but spiritually. That he meets you here. That he offers himself to you to be received in faith. We've talked often throughout Mark's gospel about how God would give those that are his, those who have been quickened, those who have been awakened by the Holy Spirit, that he will give you eyes to see and ears to hear. That while a man may come and preach the gospel to you, and you, for many, for those that have not been born again, all they will hear is the voice of a man. But for those that are his, they will hear the voice of God beyond him calling them. And it's the voice of God that's the more real. Our voices will waste away. But it's the, it's the voice of God that is even more real than the man standing in front of you. In that same way, for those that are his, for those who come in true repentant faith, he will enlighten the spiritual sense. He will give you the ability to taste and savor Jesus Christ even in this bread. You'll see something beyond it. You'll taste something beyond it. Just as eyes to see and ears to hear point us beyond the words that we read or the words that we hear. There's a phrase that we use fairly often. I think it's very helpful when I think about coming to the table. Have you ever had somebody do something magnificent or perhaps they presented you with some gift and they would say, feast your eyes upon this. Dear friends, as Jesus Christ invites you to his table, he is saying, feast your souls upon this. Something much more real and much more lasting than pieces of bread. Something much more real and much more lasting than a few drops of juice. The person of Jesus Christ. Participation with him and all that he's accomplished for your behalf. All of that applied to your life somehow new and afresh, even now in this moment. So as you come to this table and you look beyond the symbols and the shadows, you recognize this sacramental union between the elements and the body of Christ in heaven. As you hold these signs in your hand, the blood and the juice, and you direct your heart towards the thing which they actually signify, as you meditate on, as you celebrate, as you worship God for all the benefits of Christ's perfect life and atoning death, it's in these moments as you remember as you celebrate, as you worship, as you're given assurance of all that Jesus is, that you're joined together with him. Now you are joined together before the foundation of the world. You're reminded of that joining together. You're reminded of that union at this table. Even more so than this bread that goes into your body. How close are you joined to this bread in the moments to come? Pretty close. And what about this juice? And yet those things will pass. But you're so joined together with Jesus Christ, you abiding in him and he abiding in you for all eternity. You're reminded of this as you come and you take this bread into your mouth as you drink this juice into yourself. And in these moments, the saving grace of God is applied to your life in new and fresh ways. We don't know how this happens. That's the thing that churches fight about. That's the thing that churches split about. How does God's grace come to pass in the lives of his children at this table? We don't know, but he says it does. So we don't throw that away and make it into an act. We don't throw that away and just make it into another sermon. It's something more than that. It's Jesus Christ welcoming you to come and feast on him, to enjoy all the benefits that he's purchased for you and to be strengthened to have your soul nourished. Jesus says you need to continue to eat because the world is dark and it is hard. You need to continue to eat because there's still sin in your heart that's gonna pull you away. You need to continue and meet with me because you need more strength. So you come to this table to be strengthened by him that you might endure. He says you are mine and I purchased you with my blood and I'm gonna make certain that you are pure and white and clean when I come to call. And so as a means to do that, I give you this supper. So dear friends, as we gather together this morning, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to come to this table, to observe this 
magnificent ordinance that came from Christ himself. As we meet in his very real and spiritual presence, I bid those of you that have truly turned and trusted in Jesus Christ and repentant faith to come. I bid you to come. I bid you to taste and see and savor that which is best. I bid you to come and be satisfied. Dear friends, you understand this is a morsel. No one would call this a feast unless a man saw beyond it. So I invite you to come and be satisfied with a piece of bread and a drop of juice. And I bid you to come and be strengthened for what lie ahead. Dear friends, I bid you to come. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this table and all that it represents. The real, physical, human body of Jesus Christ. And all that he's accomplished on our behalf. So we participate in that even now. Father, we long for that day when we will no longer struggle against the flesh. We long for that day when our sin will no longer call out to us. We long for that day when we will see Jesus and be as he is. But for now, we joyfully come to be strengthened. Father, we want to live lives of personal holiness, not just to be seen by others. We want to be holy and righteous and just and clean to your glory. So Father, we pray that you would strengthen us now for your sake. We pray that if there's those there, if there are those here this morning, Father, for the very first time are recognizing the weight of this communion, Father, I pray that you would work in their life in a special way. They would be truly blessed as a result of this encounter. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.